From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Washington Watch, broadcasting from the heart of our nation's capital. We bring you the latest insights, analysis, and interviews on the most pressing issues facing you and your family. So for the next hour, we'll navigate the conflict and the complexities of our nation's capital with clarity, integrity, and a relentless pursuit of truth. Washington Watch starts now. And the reason why Border Patrol agents are so upset about this visit is because he's not going to any location where he's going to be able to evaluate what he needs to do. What are the policies? What are the programs that need to go into place? And he's not going to be able to do that in Brownsville. That was Border Patrol Council President Brandon Judd earlier today expressing frustration about President Biden stopping at the southern border in Brownsville, Texas, which is far removed from the epicenter of the current border crisis. Now, President Trump was also at the border today. Three years ago, we had the most secure border in history. Brandon was saying it. The general was saying it. We had the most secure border. And people weren't coming because they knew they weren't going to get in. And we weren't promising free education, free medical, free everything. I mean, all the promises that are made, no wonder they come. We'll talk with Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn about the dueling border visits today. Also today, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey filed a lawsuit against Planned Parenthood saying, quote, this is the beginning of the end for Planned Parenthood in the state of Missouri, end quote. General Bailey says they have uncovered evidence that the abortion giant has been trafficking minors across state lines for abortions without parental consent, a violation of state law. General Bailey joins us later. The feared, or at least feared by some, government shutdown appears to uh, have been averted yet once again as this afternoon the House passed another short-term extension of government spending that buys Congress a few more weeks to finish their spending bills. Appropriations process is, is ugly. Democracy is ugly. Um, this is the way it works every year, always has, except that we've instituted some new innovations. We broke the omnibus fever, right? That's how Washington has been run for years. We're, we're, we're trying to turn the aircraft carrier back to real budgeting and spending reform. That was House Speaker Mike Johnson earlier today explaining what the House was doing. The measure now goes over to the Senate, has to be approved before late Wednesday, uh, Friday night. We're going to be joined later by Georgia Congressman Andrew Clyde with the latest. And we've looked at many impacts this week of the millions of illegal immigrants that have crossed the U.S. southern border. Crime, the threat of terrorist attacks, the impact upon our medical system, social services. And today we'll look at one of the areas that is often overlooked and is already struggling the public education system. Meg Kilgannon, a former member of the Department of Education in the Trump administration, joins me for that conversation. All right, before we dive into today's issues, let me remind you the bedrock principles that guide us here at Washington Watch, faith, family, and freedom. These are not just words, but the values that form the very foundation of our nation's greatness. So whether you're joining us from the heart of Washington, D.C., or from the heartland of America, I encourage you to stand up, speak up, and be a part of the solution. Well, as the real-world consequences of the Biden administration's border crisis continue to dominate headlines, both President Biden and former President Donald Trump visited the U.S.-Mexican border today, providing a stark contrast between their dueling approaches to the border. As the illegal immigrants strain resources for local governments throughout the country, and in the wake of multiple high-profile crimes committed by illegal immigrants, even liberal sanctuary cities are rethinking their misguided policies. Now, in this election year, has the border crisis reached a tipping point, even for Democrats? Joining me now to discuss this is Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee. She serves on four Senate committees, including the Senate Finance Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator Blackburn, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to have you. It is so good to be with you. Thank you so much. So this is an issue you've been on for quite some time. President yes. Biden finally goes to the border. He goes to bo the border today. But you've described his visit as too little, too late. Tell us why. Yes, indeed. Too little, too late and to the wrong address. And he spent 50 years avoiding going to the border. He spent the first three years of his administration saying there was not a crisis. The border was secure. Now, all of a sudden, that border security 
is the number one issue with the American people. He decides to go there, and what does he do when he gets there? He blames Republicans, saying, if you would pass one more bill, give me one more law on the books, and then I'll do my job. And what we know is that during his first 100 days in office, he took 94 executive actions and orders that opened the border and made our immigration law weaker. We know Joe Biden's border policy is an open border, and we know regardless of how many laws are on the books, how many laws that anyone would pass, he is not going to close that border. Right. It, it's, to him, everything's an issue of money. I'm going to play a clip uh, of his speech or his comments down on the border this afternoon just a little bit ago. Play clip number 11. They desperately need more resources. Say it again. They desperately need more resources, need more agents, more officers, more judges, more equipment in order to secure our border. Folks, it's time for us to move on this. We can't wait any longer. So, so Senator, let me ask you this question. I was at the border uh, the last year of the Trump administration. It was like a ghost town. Congress didn't hadn't passed any additional laws. They hadn't allocated any more money. It was the president on his own said, we're shutting down the border, and he did it. And as you just pointed out, everything he put in place, Joe Biden and his team undid when he became president. That is right. And President Biden left off the first thing that Border Patrol asked for. And for 30 years, they've been saying, and Tony, you've heard it many times, they need a physical barrier. When you have that physical barrier, you eliminate the ability of the cartels to just run people over our border and into the country and have the U.S. taxpayer finish the job of delivering those people wherever they want to go in the country. They need a barrier. That's where Build the Wall came from. Donald Trump, does he listened to the Border Patrol. They said, we need a physical barrier, we need better technology, and we need more officers and agents in order to secure the border. But Joe Biden, he's not going to give them a physical barrier because that would stop the flow of illegal immigration. What he continues to do is try to find ways to make illegal legal. He wants to make illegal immigration legal. You talk about the the border wall, and I, I saw the wall as it was being erected there. Yeah. The a, a lot of the material for building that wall was bought and paid for by the Trump administration. Correct. What happened to that when President Biden came into office? Well, he's been trying to sell off the pieces of equipment and the steel fencing that was sitting there. He's been trying to sell off the gates that would close the gated areas in that border wall. And what we need to do is have a President Donald Trump back in office. We need to go back to building that wall. And Tony, as you were down there, you probably noticed when people were out there working, building that wall, you didn't see these cartels running people across the border. Mm -mm. And that's because they knew they were going to be turned back. But now that the border is open and the Border Patrol is required to take in everyone that raises their hand or touches U.S. soil, then you have this 300,000 people a month, not 300,000 in a year, or 300,000 in four years, but 300,000 a month. There has been 9 million people on Joe Biden's watch that have come across that border. It is a population greater than the population of 38 of our states. Now, we know what the president is saying, just like, oh, you, you got to pass. Congress has to do this. Uh, Congress has to pass a law. I'm trying to work with Congress. They won't help me. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, I know you are out about the country. You're certainly within the state of Tennessee as you travel the state. Are people seeing through that? Do they realize and are they have they come to an understanding of the crisis that we have at our southern border? Yes, they have. 
And it is the number one issue. I did a telephone town hall with eight of my Tennessee counties, eight of my 95 counties the other night. And Tony, the number one issue was all about the border. And, you know, many of our churches that have ministries and outreach, they talk about how there is no compassion in this border policy because of drugs, that now fentanyl is the number one killer of Americans from ages 18 to 45. Fentanyl itself, number one killer. And so many of our women's groups in our churches are working on the human trafficking issue. And they're hearing these stories and seeing these women that have been physically, mentally, emotionally, drug, and sexually abused as they make this journey. And many of these young girls thought they were coming to America for a job in education, and they find out that they are being raped and sexually exploited as they make this journey. And this is what people are being subjected to, and more people are realizing this is not a compassionate or humane way to treat people. The border well, needs to be secure. Well, anytime you deviate from the law, it yeah. is not compassionate because it ends That's in right. consequences where you have victims and people who are hurt. And speaking of that, yesterday the president held a White House event to celebrate lowering crime rates. Now, this after we saw a spike in crime and lawlessness followed by, you know, marginal lowering that is nowhere near the two, uh, 2019 levels. I mean, lawlessness breeds crime. Yes, you're right. And see, when you look at this administration, look where they're putting their energy. They keep trying to make illegal activity legal. They keep trying to normalize lawlessness. They keep pushing two tiers of justice. That is not what the American people are wanting, and they're seeing through this. And when and if you were with me in Tennessee visiting with sheriffs and police chiefs, they would tell you they cannot get their hands around the issue of crime in their communities because of the open border, because the drug cartels and the drug dealers that are coming in because of the gangs that are coming in. They're coming into communities that have never had a gang. They are carrying out carjackings and home robberies and smash and grabs, and they're going into neighborhoods and recruiting kids in those cities to be a part of the gangs. And people are saying, hey, wait a minute, you've got to do something. And Law enforcement continues to say, secure the border, yeah. and we can get our arms around this. It's got to happen. We cannot yes. sustain this. It's like our national debt. We cannot sustain yes. that either. Senator, right. always great to see you. Thanks so much for uh, taking Absolutely. time to join us. Thank you. All right, Senator Marsha Blackburn of uh, Tennessee. Text the word BORDER to 67742. We're going to deliver that petition to the Republican leadership Probably next week we're waiting for the opportune time because this issue is not going away and it's going to reach really kind of a boiling point here in the next uh, couple of weeks. So text BORDER to 67742. After the break, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey joins us to discuss his lawsuit against Planned Parenthood. He caught him red-handed. Don't go away. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific 
specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Be sure and check it out and share it with your friends, all right? And text the word BORDER to 67742 and sign the BORDER petition. Earlier today, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey filed suit against Planned Parenthood Great Plains for trafficking minors out of state to obtain abortions without parental consent, which is a violation of the law in Missouri. Truly disturbing allegations. Well, given what Missouri's investigation into Planned Parenthood has exposed, could this mark the beginning of the end of Planned Parenthood's presence in the state? Here to break down the allegations and what he has discovered is Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey. General Bailey, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me on. So uh, give us uh, kind of the thumbnail sketch of your lawsuit that you filed against Planned Parenthood based upon what? Well, there was an investigative journalist that filmed a video at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Kansas City in November of 2023, right at the end of the year, that uncovered that agents of Planned Parenthood uh, were committed to conspiring to transport women across state lines for abortions without providing a proper consent uh, for juveniles, uh, that they were willing to conceal after the fact a sexual uh, exploitation of a 13-year-old girl. And that this was a consistent pattern of behavior and practice of this clinic. And I would also point out that no one should be surprised by this. Uh, the Planned Parenthood's history in the state of Missouri is one fraught with law, law violations. Right. I mean, since 2018, the state has been uh, uncovering a commitment by Planned Parenthood uh, to fail to comply with state statute. This has gotten to a point where this is now uh, illegal behavior. They must be held accountable. And one wonders why... This organization is allowed to operate within the state of Missouri, given these flagrant and willful violations of our state laws. So, General, I have I actually have that clip. I'm going to play a, a clip of what you just described. Play clip number three. How many times do you do this a year? Like a Girls coming out of the state, yes. Oh, every day. We get, yeah. Every day. Every day. Wow. Because we set up hotels for them. We set up every day. Every day. So this is so great because she's 13. Yeah. She's so young. 
I mean, this is 13 years old. Uh, Planned Parenthood in, in the, the, the clip goes on to show that uh, they conceal it intentionally from the parents. What else have you discovered in your investigation? Well, Tony, you're right. I mean, first of all, they conceal it from the parents. But the, later in the video, uh, the agent of Planned Parenthood brags about uh, forging documents and deceiving uh, custodial authorities, uh, juvenile courts, schools about the transport of these minors across state lines. And look at the smirk on the employee's face. They're proud of this behavior. They're excited to do it. Their commitment to the destruction of human life is uh, they put that before the health and safety of women and girls and obedience to state law. This is disgusting. Look, we know that in 2018, they were using a moldy abortion machine on women. That was proven. And that the doctors at some of these clinics refused to uh, properly report uh, co medical complications from these procedures as required by state statute. Flash forward to 2019, 2020, when the same physicians uh, for Planned Parenthood testified under oath that they were not providing the statutorily required uh, risk notifications about the danger of the procedures to women. And now this. Again, this is a consistent pattern of behavior establishing that Planned Parenthood is more committed to the destruction of human life and with no regard for the health or safety of parents, uh, of, of children or of women. I would say that at this point, it is, uh, it, it is absolutely a, a certainty that Planned Parenthood cannot provide health uh, you know, ethical or safe health care to anyone in the state of Missouri. Now, according to your lawsuit, uh, this is not just like a one-off that just happened last year. This goes back decades. I mean, this is their mode of operation of circumventing, violating the law. That's right. And Tony, I'd like to point out, too, in the state of Missouri, a 13-year-old female can't consent to sex. That's a that's a sexual offense against a minor if that young girl showed up pregnant at that clinic. And that clinic, by statute, is a mandatory reporter. So when I say that they're, uh, you know, concealing the ex sexual exploitation of children, that's what I mean. They had a duty under the law to report that sexual offense against the minor so that the, the victim could be cared for and so that the criminal wrongdoer could be held accountable by the, by the criminal code. So and the state was deprived of that ability because they refuse to comply with the state mandatory reporting requirements. So in your lawsuit, as you go after Planned Parenthood, will Planned Parenthood as a corporation be held liable or will they throw the, you know, the clinic workers under the bus who were simply following the orders of the clinic? Well, we're not going to let them escape liability under that theory. What the uh, what the individual in the video expressed was that this was the habit, routine, and custom of the entire clinic, not just one rogue uh, individual. And so she's acting as an agent of Planned Parenthood, and under an agency theory of law, the entire organization is responsible. But again, this is not an isolated incident. This right. is a pattern of behavior. But and what's frightening is right now, radical progressives are pushing abortion initiative petitions in the state that seek to turn Missouri into California. California and Missourians don't want that. At the end of the day, what is illegal now and what Planned Parenthood is having to conceal and do behind closed doors and is only uncovered through this kind of heroic investigation, they would be allowed to do uh, if these initiative petitions pass. So now is the time to expose this wrongdoing for what it is, to hold wrongdoers accountable. We need a court order putting a stop to it in the future, and we need discovery so we can look back in time and hold the wrongdoers accountable. And, and I would just add that it's not just Missouri. I know that there'll be, well, this is just an isolated clinic. You're arguing it's all of Missouri. I've written about this in other states. This is Planned Parenthood in the way that they operate. I mean, we, we an organization, an entity that takes innocent human lives, you cannot expect them to abide by the law. No, Tony, and you know I'm not given to hyperbole, but at this point, the best label I have for Planned Parenthood is a lawless cult of death. What do you anticipate will be the timeline of action regarding your lawsuit? Well, a judge has been assigned today. We're looking for a docket entry that will give us our first court date. We need to get this process underway. Again, we need a court order. Uh, if Planned Parenthood refuses to comply by the law, we'll get a court order requiring them to do so and hold in contempt anyone who is trafficking women out of state or uh, for abortions or concealing uh, the sexual exploitation of children in the future, there's going to be a discovery process. And we're going to get to the bottom of this. Again, we need to know how many people were violating state statute and, and the degree of culpability and how many state statutes were violated. Of course, there's the mandatory reporting requirement. Right. There's parental notification requirement. If people were forging documents, we will bring the full force and effect of the law to bear on those.
Bailey, I uh, thank you for joining us uh, and to uh, share this information with us. I look forward to following up with you as you find out more information about Planned Parenthood's lawless activities. And I again commend you for leading out to protect children and women from those who would prey upon them. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, I would encourage you, when you, you get elected leaders like this that are in positions that are doing the right thing, encourage them. We need more like General Bailey. All right, don't go away. We're going to be joined after the break to talk about the continuing, edu- continuing resolution in Congress. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us. All right. Earlier today, the uh, the House passed a stopgap funding bill that extends government funding further into March. Buys them about another week on the first uh, continuing resolution, a couple more weeks on the other one. Now, the uh, long-term negotiations continue. Now, the deal will put uh, six negotiated spending bills on the floor next week under suspension. That means uh, they have to get a higher threshold of support because they're going directly to the floor with it. And it will push until later in the month a more hotly contested appropriation group of appropriations bills, including those for the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, which is where the budget or where the border is found, and Health and Human Services. Joining me now to discuss this, Congressman Andrew Clyde. He serves on the House Appropriations Committee. He represents the 9th Congressional District of Georgia. Congressman Clyde, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to see you. Tony, great to be with you this afternoon on Washington Watch. All right. So uh, another short-term continuing resolutions while we're told negotiations continue. That means one of two things have to happen. You've got to get the appropriations bills through the process, or we're looking at possibly another another continuing resolution? Yeah, that's uh, kind of what it looks like right now. We've uh, Passed this continuing resolution today, which I voted against because uh, we should not be doing this. We should be passing our appropriations with Republican policy. We should not be passing a CR under suspension. That means that the Democrats have to vote for it, which means it's not going to be a Republican bill. It's going to be basically a Democrat bill, which is why I voted against it. Um, But the solution here, I think, since it appears that we're really not going to get the policy wins that we put in our appropriations that we worked so hard to make sure happen, uh, since it appears we're not going to get those policy wins, I think the best thing that could possibly happen 
is a year-long CR continuing resolution, which literally um, then implements the 1% cut and would save hundred, almost $100 billion uh, in reduced spending over last year's Pelosi's uh, 2023 budget. And also, then all the earmarks that have been added, all those pork barrel projects, would be eliminated as well, because you can't have earmarks when you have a continuing resolution. All right. So l let me go back and let's unpack that for just a moment. The the appropriations, that's the process that, uh, you know, you're part of that. You, you, you've got to go through, you look at the agencies, you look at their budgets, and you approve, uh, you know, their spending requests. And so this is what Congress really is supposed to do. This, But it hasn't done it in almost 20, over 20 years. So um, you talk about policy, okay? So this is where these so-called policy writers, and meaning like money's not going to be spent for abortion, it's not going to be spent for transgender surgeries, for the, the DEI, all this crazy wokeness. This is where you rein this in. But what you're, you're saying is, even though you've gotten those in there, we're not going to end up with those. Why? We're not going to, because the Republicans are unwilling to fight for it, in my opinion. Um, you have this issue uh, of the higher spending and the Senate, you know, we sent those appropriations over months and months and months ago. The first one went back in July. We passed most of them in September and October, and they have sat idle in the Senate because the Senate refuses to take them up mm -hmm. unless the Republican wins are stripped out of them. And so now with the higher spending levels that were agreed upon by leadership uh, and the, the policy wins that aren't there anymore, you know, then the Democrats will, will vote for it. And, and, and we're bringing it by, up on suspension, which means that, that it has to have Democrat votes to, to pass as opposed to bringing it forward on a rule vote, which Republicans, which would make it a, a Republican bill and it could pass with only Republican votes. Okay, so the what it comes down to is you've got the, the Republicans in the Senate, the Republican leadership really not going to fight for these policy gains in the appropriations bill. So you've got the Republican leader in the Senate, you've got the, the Senate Democrat leader, then you've got the this de Democrat leader in the House, and then you have the Republican leader in the House. So you really, it's, it, it turns out to be three against one when it comes to the negotiations process, does it not? Uh, it does, but here, you know, the Republican leader uh, in the House is the Speaker. I mean, that, he's the third most powerful person in our government. You know, the three against one, that's not equal. Hey, the Speaker should have the authority there um, not the same authority in this negotiation as Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader, mm -hmm. but that's what it seems to be. That's the way this government has worked for many, many years, and that's one of the reasons I think it's so broken. You got And you got to uh, fix that. We're, we're almost out of time. W one of the other options here you made reference to is a year-long CR. This was a part of negotiations that took place um, right when the Republicans took over. Uh, that if you have to go to a year-long CR, it kicks in these reductions. This could be the best way forward, but how do you accomplish that? Well, I think we have to pass it here in the Republican House and send it over to the Senate. And now that Mitch McConnell is no longer the leader in the Senate, and as you see, you know, there's members in the Senate are already lining up to run for leader, which means that Mitch McConnell's authority is pretty much in the tank. Right. I think you see a great conservative shift in the Senate. So I think we could win now on a year-long CR, reducing our spending by over $100 billion and eliminating earmarks. How do you get it out of the House? Very quickly, I know you've got some defense hawks on the Republican side opposed to this. You're going to need every single Republican vote, are you not? Well, we are, but I think we could actually get some Democrat votes on that as well, because unfortunately, uh, it's going to be Pelosi's policies uh, which we're going to basically end up anyway with this half omnibus that we yeah. are talking about passing in March. It's going to be very interesting to watch this process play out. I, I for one, would be in support of a year-long CR. It'd be one way to get some reduction in spending. Andrew Clyde, always great to see you. Thanks so much for taking time to join us. Thank you, Tony. Great to be with you. All right. Well, obviously, we're going to be uh, staying on this as we move into next week in the appropriations battle continues. All right, don't go away. Meg Kilgannon joins me next here on Washington Watch. 
Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. back to Washington. Watch the website is TonyPerkins.com. And uh, if you have not yet signed the petition on the border, here's what you can do. Text the word border to 67742. You'll get a link. You sign the petition. We're going to be delivering those next week because I think we're getting close. The, the battle over the border, which, as we were talking about earlier, continues to rage, uh, is going to come to a head in the second tranche of appropriations bills. That, that's if there's going to be a battle, it's going to be there. So we're looking at uh, probably about two weeks. So sign the petition. Text border to 67742. Our word for today comes from Leviticus chapter 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Now, there are various theories as to what Aaron's two boys did. It's almost like they were, it's almost like investigating a crime scene. There's evidence that uh, they were not authorized to do what they did. They may have used coals or incense that contradicted God's instructions. They may have been intoxicated, impairing, impairing their judgment. The bottom line is they didn't take God's call to holiness and reverence seriously. God and his grace are not to be taken lightly. To find out more about our journey through the Bible, go to frc.org slash Bible or text Bible to 67742. That's Bible to 67742. Would love to have you on the journey. 
Well, the recent murder of a nursing student in Athens, Georgia, provides a stark reminder of the consequences of the Biden administration's border crisis that they created, as well as the unintended consequences brought by the sanctuary city policies of the left. We've also seen how such policies overrun local hospitals and other, other government services. But often left unmentioned is how the ongoing border crisis undermines our nation's education system. What consequences do federal immigration policies bring to our local schools? Joining me now to discuss this and much, much, much more is Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies at the Family Research Council. She served in the Department of Education during the Trump administration. Meg, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Tony. Okay, uh, let's talk about the strain that this unregulated open border and the immigrants coming across this country illegal, uh, across the border illegally into the country places on local schools. Well, it, it gives them a population of students who are, are have a lot of needs, right? And this is a strain on the budget to start with. So let me let me let me stop you right there and ask a question. We touched on this earlier in the week with one of our guests, but the schools have to accept them. They must. So there's no option. Even if they're here illegally, they have access to the schools. Yes, indeed, they do. And, um, you know, we can debate whether that's a good idea or not, but it's Americans are very generous, and it's hard for us to turn down a student at the schoolhouse door if they present themselves for to learn, right, so essentially. what happens when they're coming across the border, and I don't know what percentage, but I'm certain it's high, do not speak English? Yes. Then they need special needs services, right? And the, the strain that this, this causes is that a lot of times these students settle in high poverty areas, right? And the schools there are already underfunded or certainly not, not prepared to a deal to, to deliver the additional services that these children will require right. to get them to be literate in English. A lot of them come here, and, and regardless of their age, they're illiterate in their native language. They're oftentimes enumerate. They can't do math. And so a lot of remediation is required for these kids. And if we're going to teach them, it's a huge expense for the school system. And again, they're suddenly in places where the school system is already not well So what funded. does that mean to the students that are already there? Well, then the students who are already there will, will you know, get less, right? That it will naturally it will impact those kids, and it affects wealthy areas too because of the drug crisis in Loudoun County. Recently, we've had this big controversy, in neighboring to me, over whether or not the school is notifying parents when children overdose at school. Okay, there are several cases of children who have overdosed at school, and they don't notify the parents that this has happened. So you can't address this with your kids during the you know. This traumatic event, if you don't know that it's happened. Uh, but the reason that kids are ODing at school is because, for one thing, there's poor control over the environment by the people who are running the schools, but there's an increase in drugs coming across the border, right? There's more availability of these drugs. And it's causing all kinds of pressures to be put on many, many areas of our society. And, and of course, it's happening to our school system as well. And so these schools are just expected to absorb the cost of the Biden administration's immigration policy? This is what I would say is an unfunded mandate, right? We used to talk about those right. in the 90s. Yeah, it's been a while <laughs> right? since I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> but that's exactly what this is. So I, I, actually, that's very interesting because it is an unfunded mandate. I'm wondering if, if local governments could take action against the Biden administration on, for that reason. I, I certainly would want to if I were running a school system that was dealing with these kinds of things. So, so I mean, our schools have already been see, seeing in the last two decades a decline in test scores. Yes, I mean, this obviously is not helping. Right, right. And, and another thing, for our for our families out there who are homeschoolers, a lot of times people homeschool for a lot of reasons, but they're comforted by the thought that it, I'm homeschooling my child, so if I pull my child out, the money that would go for my kid won't go to the school system from the federal government. Well, they're replacing your money with the money that they get from the federal government because of the immigrant students who are now in the school. Right. Do they, do they, but but the, the amount of money that comes from the federal government to 
local education is, is less than 10%. Yes, a lot of times. And it's a per student right, rate, right? right? They're not accounting for all these additional needs that this particular population of students right, has. Especially if you have to have, I mean, that's been one of long running issues is special needs cost so much more yes. and the federal government's element of, of the overall budget is so small. Right. But so if you're getting an influx of students who need, you know, remedial language, mathematics, and you're only getting at best 10% from the federal government, the local government's having to absorb that. They absolutely will. There are lots of, of school systems who have never needed, like a, an English as a second language teacher, for example. They need language specialists. They need special, you know, some of these kids have can, other learning can, needs. Can states say we're not going to do this? Um, I suppose they could um, try to to tell the Biden administration that they don't want any more illegal immigrants in, in their I mean, community. Well, well, but, 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 here, but here's you know, the what are you going to do? I mean, but, but look, I is a former state legislature. I remember dealing with this a lot. Is that you have different school districts and people have to live in that district in order right. to go to that school. Right. I mean, and so we, we, you'd have people that would, you know, they would they want to go to a better school district, they're a little bit safer. So they would drive their kids to grandma's house and every morning and yeah. they would come pick them up. So I mean, we're making our own citizens have to live within the boundaries right. and the rules. But then someone who's not even a citizen of this country can come in and and, and go wherever they want, and we Correct. have to pay for it. Correct. And they don't have to prove how old they are. I mean, in high school, sometimes you will have young men who are young men who are in high school with 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old young women and, and young men. I mean, there there are so many um, rules that they do not have to follow that regular American citizens have to follow. So I, I would just think at some point a state's got to draw the line and say, we're not doing it. I mean, this is this is out of con- – it is absolutely out of control. Yes, all right. Speaking of, um, you know, having to be a certain age and, and being able to bend the rules, I, I want to jump to a totally different issue. And this was a report that was in the Daily Signal, um, recent report about a, a women's prison in Wisconsin where a female prison. And, and this is not we're finding out this is not an anomaly. Right. right, this is happening more often. But a female prisoner to share a cell and a bunk bed with a man who identifies as transgender. Correct. Tell us about it. So this man had taxpayer-funded sex change surgery in Wisconsin in 2013. Ten years ago. Ten years ago, and uh, he is now assigned to a woman's prison, and he's sharing a cell with a female prisoner. All right, so what, what is this man in jail for? He is in jail for having raped his daughter, and, the, the, and his son witnessed this at times. So this, is, this guy's not a nice guy. Right? So he's in prison he's, for about 20 years as a convicted sex offender. Yes. He's was placed into a cell with another woman, with a woman, he's a man, with a woman who, as I read the article, if I understand it correctly, was actually the victim of sexual abuse as a child. That is true, yes. And she suffered a lot of hardship in her life. Her father apparently gave her drugs in order to be able to uh, sexually assault her, and so she's suffered with addiction. She's had all kinds of issues in her life. And so to to be forced in jail to share a tiny cell with a man, regardless of his actual physical right. situation, is already a, a, a just, that's cruel and unusual in my book, uh, to have the situation for this for this inmate. But, but I'm going to go back to something you said at the beginning. Uh, this man, transgender man, um, I think that's the way you describe it. He's a man who identifies he's, as yeah, a woman. Okay. He wants you to call him a woman. But he's a man. But he's a man. The uh, rearrangement of his plumbing that was done was done at taxpayer expense. Yes. By the, the, this is crazy. We sent somebody to jail. Department. Yes. We, we send somebody to jail for being a sex offender, and then we pay somewhere upwards of $30,000 correct, 
to play out the fantasy that this guy is living? Yes. And his his prison photo shows him in makeup. He has eyeliner and blush and lipstick on. And I used to volunteer at the women's jail in Fairfax County, and those those women were not allowed to have makeup. They were not allowed to take hormonal birth control, for example. Like there are a lot of things that the women don't get that they will give right. the men in in service of their gender affirming care needs, their medical need to present as a woman. This is a, this is outrageous. This is being done at taxpayer expense. Now, I'd like to say, oh, this is just an anomaly that the the authorities in Wisconsin are just crazy, but it's not. No, and there are, I mean, this is is ridiculous because he's had this surgery and the state taxpayers have paid for it, right? But how about the the ridiculousness of in, in New Jersey, you had women who were pregnant because a man who identified as a woman and just said he was a woman right. was housed in the female jail. I mean, this that that's ridiculous on its face. This happens in California, in Washington State. I mean, it, it happens it, probably everywhere. And, of course, they, they can't do it while they're incarcerated. They have limited ability. But women are speaking out about this. Yes. And uh, women's group, the Women's Liberation Front, has has um, filed a lawsuit in several states in the West, in particular, to try to um, re, you know redress the situation. Now, in, in this particular case, this is a this is a state issue. It's not federal. It's a state prison. This is clearly within the lines of of state policymakers to address this issue. It is, but the federal the federal government does provide guidelines that most states adopt to use, it's my understanding. I'm not a criminal justice expert, but they're, they they have to follow federal guidelines. But, but, but if, sometimes but, they do house well, federal but, I'm going to borrow a line from my dad, all right? I'm going to pull out a dad line here. If, if everybody else was jumping off a cliff, would you do it? <laughs> I'd like to think I wouldn't. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the point. At some point, somebody's going to say, hey, wait a minute, this is a cliff. I'm not jumping off of it. Right. We, we have to come back. It's just like a, the, the conversation we're having over the budget. It's not easy to say, no, we're not doing this anymore. But somebody has to stand up and be the adult, the sane one in the room and say, we are not going to facilitate this anymore. We're not. Unfortunately, in fact, we're not going to have time to talk to it. But even today in Kansas, uh, there's debate uh, over passing yet another bill that would protect children from this type of experimental surgery and, and, and drugs related to transgenderism. You know, that I think is really the good news, is that when people discover these things are happening, they do demand that their legislators take action, and, and the and legislators respond. So this is right? happening. We're up now. This will be 24 states, I think. Right. Uh, in fact, earlier this week, uh, the courts in Indiana allowed that SAFE Act to go into effect. Right, which is a really good development. That means that they think that they won't be overturning it. Right. Right. So the, the good news here to put an exclamation point on what you just said, Meg, is that when people do get involved, when they yes. say enough is enough, the legislators are responding. So I, I just think, yes, we, we, we saw movement on women's sports. Now we see it on, on children no longer being subjected to this experimental surgeries and drugs. But you know what? We just need to draw a bold line and say enough of this insanity. We're not doing this anymore. Absolutely. Do things like sign the border petition. Yeah. That matters. These actions matter. Call your local representatives. Call everybody and tell them your, what you think about how things are going. All right, Meg Kilgannon, always great to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. Thanks for stopping in. Well, folks, thank you for stopping in as well. But as Meg said, sign the border petition. Text the word border to 67742. And by all means, you need to be registered so that you can vote. All right. You've got to be voting. You've got to be involved in the process. All right. We're out of time for today, but I want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we encourage you to keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. 
For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 